Welcome to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast, the show where brilliant professionals share how to sharpen the universal skills required to flourish at work. Enjoy more career fun, wins, meaning, and money with your host, Pete Mikaitis. Well, once again, I'm excited to introduce another fantastic interview here. And please keep the feedback rolling at Pete at awesomeatyourjob.com or awesomeatyourjob.com slash contact because it's really helpful to dial into finding great guests like Dr. Carmen Simon. Dr. Simon's book, Impossible to Ignore, Creating Memorable Content to Influence Decisions, dropped just this week. And so it was so fun to have her share some of the takeaways from that and all of her other research. So there is just some really great information here associated with making your messages memorable and really coming across well in the course of presenting your communications. And what I love is that it's research-based and driven, all this good neuroscience stuff behind it as opposed to a mere opinion. So that's a lot of fun. So you're going to have a lot of fun takeaways along those lines, specifically one, how to leverage the action hierarchy of reflexes habits, and goals to make your messages easier to act on. Two, the power of repetition and how to harness it optimally. And three, the core commonalities associated with the top 50 SlideShare presentations ever. If you know that SlideShare program and website recently acquired by LinkedIn, which has all those PowerPoints, uh, Dr. Carmen Simon did some really cool work investigating those and and so she'll share a little bit from that. So uh, her story is a Carmen Simon, PhD, is a recognized cognitive scientist who specializes in neuroscience research and takes a daring approach to persuasion by placing memory at the heart of all decision-making. She advocates that people make decisions in their favor based on what they remember, not on what they forget. Carmen suggests that if we want to persuade others, it is not practical to simply help them remember the past. It is more profitable to know how to influence what they will remember in the future where decisions happen. Carmen is the co-founder of Rexy Media, a presentation design and training firm that uses brain science to help business professions stay on their audience's minds long enough to make a difference. So you can check her out at rexymedia.com. And of course, check out the, the show notes, the transcript and links and items mentioned at awesomeatyourjob.com slash F11. There's EP and numbers 1-1. So here's Carmen. Carmen, thanks so much for appearing here on the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast. Thank you so much for inviting me. Well, you've got a pretty impressive set of credentials, multiple uh, doctorates, and, and that's fantastic. I'd like to hear a little bit of the story associated with how you came to be interested in these things in the first place. I understand that your father had an influence. <laughs> yeah, for sure. We often follow on our parents' paths. And uh, my dad is a psychologist, and um, I have been intrigued by the human psyche, especially as you graduate from college and uh, you get to work for the corporate uh, world. And uh, you're exposed to a lot of uh, things that work and many things that do not. And I've started asking this question how is it that some people are so good at following up on what they promise to do? And why is it that some people are not? I'm sure that yeah. in your job right now, you're, you're meeting a lot of people who say, hey, I'm going to send you that file tomorrow. Even for me, I was going to send you my bio this morning. Did I do it? No, I didn't. Mm-hmm. And so, some people follow through and some people do not. And I realized that when people do follow through, great things can happen. We get hired. We get promoted. We get married. Ha ha. 
And uh, when people don't follow through in our favor, then many things stagnate. Our sales cycles, for instance, if you work in that field, get to be longer. Relationships are not so great. People don't follow through on their promises and there are negative consequences for that. And as a result of that, then I started asking, why is it that people don't follow through? Because surely not everybody has bad intentions. When somebody says, hey, I'll call you tomorrow or I'll send you that email, I'm sure that for most part, people are well-intended. And that's when I realized that in order for people to act in our favor and to follow through on their promises, we have to be on their minds long enough for action to happen. So that's when I took it a step further and and discovered that in all of our decision-making, and I use a strong word, all, all Mm -hmm. of our decision-making is based on what we remember, not on what we forget. And that's when I started researching a lot more this concept of how does memory influence decision-making? Well, I'm I'm very intrigued. So what do we know? How does memory influence (laughs) decision-making? We have started knowing a lot more in the past few decades, as you know, with increased um, and improved brain imaging technologies. We have been able to peek underneath the human skull and now know a little bit more of what does what in the brain. Do we know everything in the brain? Definitely not. It will be many more decades before we can decode the entire brain. But we have learned a lot more. For instance, we used to know only 30 regions in the brain, and now we know more than 300. We look at, uh, at brain science to inform how is it that we can stay on other people's minds long enough for, for them to make a decision in our favor. And when I say brain science, I mean the intersection of two fields. One is neuroscience, which studies the structure and function of the brain. And the other field is cognitive psychology, which studies mental functions like attention and memory, decision-making, problem-solving, creativity. And when you merge these two fields together these days, you have a very beautiful combination because now we know more about how attention happens in the brain, how memories are formed. We made it even to the point where you can see the birth of a memory wow. using brain image. Yeah, I know. It's, it's incredible, isn't it? The birth of a memory. Yeah. <laughs> it's like a novel title. It, that's true. <laughs> that, could, that could be your next book, Pete. <laughs> so much I want to know here. So, I mean, we could probably talk about the mechanisms by which the brain operates at length and, and have some fun with it. But I, I might maybe shift gears a little bit more toward the application side of things. With, with, with Rexy Media, you talk about having a, a flashlight and a magnet. The flashlight calls attention to what's important in a message, and the magnet helps kind of make it stick. So what's going on in the brain, and how can we work with that optimally to have, I guess, a, a really bright flashlight and a really strong magnet? <laughs> So I'm glad that you, you mentioned those, uh, those metaphors because imagine this. Let's just say that um, you want to, you're about to get engaged, um, as you're uh, sharing with me before the, uh, this call. And uh, you wanted to, obviously, initially when you started dating your, your fiancé, you wanted to stay on her mind long enough for her to say yes to you and no one else. Let's just say That's that um, sh- there was a lot of competition. <laughs> <laughs> Certainly. Yeah, exactly. So, and then in business, it's no different. We want to stay on people's minds and long enough for them to say, hey, we want to hire you or we want to promote you or we want to uh, consider you one of the greatest people to do business with. And in order for, 
for us to do that, first we have to be on their mind. So that's where memory or that magnet has to happen. You have to say or do something that sticks. Quite often people forget to act in our favor just because they didn't pay attention to begin with. So that's where that flashlight metaphor comes in. In order for people to remember you, they have to pay attention to you in the first place. And the reason that memory is important and as a result attention is important is because both of them lead then to decision making. It would be a shame for somebody to pay attention to you and remember you, but not say yes. Just imagine like your fiance we have, would have said, oh yeah, I still remember you and uh, <laughs> I kind of like you, but the answer is no. Oh, oh, I know. That'd be kind of sad. So actually, can you remember a time when, when you learned something, you still remember it, but you did not do anything with it? Sure. Well, I guess those are kind of shameful things like, oh, I should have done something with that. I'm looking over at my bookshelf because I imagine mm-hmm. surely there are some tidbits here. I think some of them is about sort of discipline, maybe in like the exercise world. It's like, oh, I've learned yeah. some great things about exercise, but not doing it. <laughs> Oh, you're still right. Yeah. How many personal training sessions did you attend or do people attend? And then they say, oh, I'm just going to continue on with those routines. And they don't really stick. I remember attending a Tony Robbins workshop. Oh, I did that. I unleashed the power within and walked on fiery coals. You did? I sure did. Yay. (laughs) And did you remember as a result of that experience, were you given like a binder with hundreds of pages of all sorts of beautiful things to follow up on? Oh, I sure was. How many of those did you apply? (laughs) Well, I remember he challenged us to be vegan for a month. That was brutal for me. (laughs) (laughs) Well, and I I like that you're mentioning this. And um, here's what uh, what we know from brain science in terms of of decision-making and acting in general. Because what is decision-making but the choice of an action? So how does the brain choose what to do next? And what we know so far is that there are three paths towards action or towards decision-making. We decide, first of all, based on reflexes. So we decide in a Pavlovian kind of way almost, in the sense of there are some actions that we take that are pre-wired and um, the memory is a given, so to speak. So for instance, it doesn't take a lot of training to realize that you shouldn't touch a hot surface with your hand because from an evolutionary perspective, if we protect our skin, we improve our longevity. And uh, we also react reflexively and we know what to do to sweet tastes. Uh, We react reflexively to odors. We react to body temperature. We react to altruism and beauty. And I mean, it's impossible not to react to flowers, for instance, or youthfulness Mm -hmm. or obviously sex. So there are some things, some memories that are already part of our inventory that, uh, that we're born with. So that's one path towards what to do next. We already know. A second path is acting based on or making decisions based on habits. And when you say that it took a long time to uh, to adjust to a vegan lifestyle, that's because it was probably interfering with other habits that you had. Yes. And uh, like reflexes, habits are conscious at first, but with enough exposure and repetition, they become subconscious. And the reason that it's so easy to decide what to do next based on habits is because they don't require so much cognitive effort. They're just a given. It's a lot easier probably for you to reach for the chicken than uh, to reach for the cucumbers. That's true. <laughs> a third way of, of deciding and choosing your next action is based on goals. And uh, like reflexes or habits, goals are requiring a lot more cognitive effort. It is possible for humans to change their minds in light of new information, but that means we have enough willpower to do so. 
So at the end of a very busy day for me, let's just say that we had a lot of work to do, or even for you going back to uh, to the vegan dilemma, if you get home at five o'clock and you open the refrigerator, what are you more likely to reach for, the chocolate or the broccoli? So, <laughs> well, if it were me, it'd be easy. But uh, so I, I'm, I'm with you. It's like during kind of an exhausted, kind of challenging yeah. time, yeah. You, you want to be comforted. You want to be comforted, and also you don't have enough cognitive power, le- yeah. cognitive power left, and enough uh, willpower in order to change your your actions in front of new information. So even though you had just attended the workshop, and let's say you were really believing in this fact that a vegan lifestyle might help you out, you see that uh, that chicken, and it just looks, you've been eating it for years and years, and you're thinking, oh, just a small bite is not going to hurt. Okay, I hear you. So I've got three layers here, and, and they take progressively more cognitive effort or power. Yes. The goal's the most, the habit's the second, and then our, our natural reflexes the least. So I, I kind of understand the three paths. So then if we're trying to make some, some change stick or to, to get a message received well, how do we work with that? Exactly. So if you are talking about this podcast being um, presented in the realm of um, a better day at work or influencing mm-hmm. others in the positive way or just doing things more efficiently, you have to step back and ask, is this new information that I'm proclaiming, whether it's uh, new content or a new skill, going to survive if it's not linked to some existing reflexes or, or habits, but it's only linked to goals. Because a mistake that people make, especially in business content all the time, is they try to appeal so much to our goal-oriented behavior at the detriment of habits and reflexes. And it's very difficult because it's not immediately sustainable to engage in something completely new unless you, at first, at least, link it to something that's, uh, that's old and habitual. So could you give me an example? Yeah, so for instance, uh, let's just say that, uh, let's think of a, of a recent example, a few recent examples that are on people's minds. Uh, let's think of uh, the Super Bowl commercials. Have you, have you seen the, um, you may have watched the Super Bowl and some of the commercials that uh, people always tune into because so much money goes into the production of those and you're thinking, gosh, are they, they're fun to look at, but are they effective? I remember the marmot. I remember the Dorito and the and the child in the womb. Uh, so there are a couple I recall. Yes. Oh, that's good. So see, that's a huge compliment that you just paid to the producers because imagine if we're talking about attention, memory, and decision making being at the foundation of success, business success these days, which is what I proclaim. Then those ads achieved all three. They got your attention in the moment because how many stimuli compete for our attention during a Super Bowl party or a Super Bowl event? Lots. Oh, yeah. So just because people paid $30 million for however many seconds of, uh, of airtime does not guarantee attention. So somehow they got your attention. You still remember it weeks and weeks later. And if given the see, that's where they would have to track you down a little bit more and see if in front of that aisle would you reach for the Doritos or their competitors. That will be the decision-making piece. But to answer the question that you said earlier, so how is it that we can hook some new information into into habits, which is one of the easiest way to implement change? I remember one of the commercials uh, being the Colgate one. Do you remember their um, very humanitarian message in terms of don't let the rut water run when you're brushing your teeth? I don't remember that. I'm, uh, the, the reason I may remember it a little bit more is because I'm so super guilty of that. I brush my teeth and uh, there it is, the water running in the background. 
So obviously it's a habit that they would want many people, me included, to change. And the reason why they will find it easier to do that is because at point B, because they presented that information, let's just say at point A during the, the Super Bowl, and people are supposed to act on that information at point B, which is later on, two minutes later, 10 minutes later, hours, or even days later. Hopefully not days, because you'll have brushed your teeth that, <laughs> that night. <laughs> and, and the reason some products or some services or some ideas have a, a better chance of staying in our minds and influencing our actions a lot more than others is because they're automatically hooked in our behaviors, like brushing your teeth is already a behavior that you have. Yes. So already there are triggers that survive later on in our environment that will act as cues to, uh, to prompt the memory to come to mind. So that night when, uh, when I turned the water on, that commercial immediately came into my mind. So since they were already hooking into existing habits that I have, it would be a lot harder for an ad to simply say, hey, by the way, save water, and that's it. Whereas yes. when they say, save water when you brush your teeth, do you see how that hooks into a habit that you already have? And it's a lot easier if, if you then work on that connection, the new message plus the, the old habit. It's a lot easier to change behavior that way than just simply starting new and starting from scratch. Oh, that's great. That's so great. So hooking into a habit. And so I think brushing teeth is is a great one because we do that, hopefully, mm-hmm. yes. uh, every, every, at least once or twice <laughs> or a day. And so I think in kind of workplaces or, or business environments, how do you envision there being sort of you know, key habitual times or moments, like right when you open up the computer at the start of the day? Or what are some other places or opportunities to put some hooks? You see, imagine I was just working with um, with a company to create um, a presentation on their product, and what impressed me about their product is that it wasn't a piece of software that just simply said, hey, here's a new software. Who needs a new software application these days? We have mm-hmm. so many of them already. But what they did well about theirs is that it integrated immediately and seamlessly with Salesforce. And because so many business people are already, especially in their field, are already operating on Salesforce, then they're hooking something habitual to something that's new. So, for instance, in terms of uh, software development, you wouldn't start necessarily from scratch. You would look at opportunities to be where people are already. So expanding that to other tasks that you would do every day and you would like others to engage in, then the question you have to ask is, where are people looking already? So as you open up your computer, what is it that they see? For instance, sometimes uh, we teach um, brain science for, for presentations, and we realize that PowerPoint is a um, ubiquitous tool for developing presentations. And many of the principles that I share in those workshops would not live unless I gave people a PowerPoint file, which then became a template, which then had some of those triggers, just like Colgate, so at the time that it counts, at point B, you're being reminded of what you're supposed to do as opposed to retrieving memories on, on your own. I think it's one of the hardest things to start retrieving memories on your own, especially when the reward is not so immediate or so great. And so could you give us maybe some quick examples of these t- types of things tend to be rewarding to these types of audiences broadly, generally in your experience? Well, for instance, uh, the biggest change or the biggest uh, difference that I am noticing is uh, between technology-oriented audiences such as IT versus marketing. Like, There's an immediate battle when you may display a slide that has uh, beautiful pictures and a few key words versus something that has a complex chart and a lot of data. 
And uh, what I remind both audiences equally is that neither one extreme is satisfying to the brain. Simplifying complexity is a myth where memory is concerned. In order for memory to be formed, you need more memory traces, not less of them. So <laughs> therefore, simplifying your content is, is not the solution. It's, it's a shame, though, that people abuse complexity too much, so we just need to, to know how to control it. But I'll give you an example. Um, simple content is very easy to digest in the moment by an audience. So let's just say if you're a marketing individual and you explain to other people how marketing techniques take, take place or whatever your marketing plan might be for that quarter, that may be fairly easy to digest in the moment. And the brain will enjoy that ease of, um, of messaging and the simplicity of it, because the brain is not like a computer. Using science, by the way, we debunk a lot of myths, and this is one of them. The brain is not like a computer. The brain does one thing and one thing only, which is help you fight to survive another day. And in that fight, it consumes a lot of energy. And if it finds an occasion to conserve energy, it will take it, which is why people tend to fall asleep in presentations. Uh-huh. <laughs> so a simple message is very easily accepted by the brain just because it helps the brain conserve energy. But a simple message does not guarantee memory. So we have to be very cautious because simplicity will feel great in the moment, but one, it will become boring very, very quickly because there's only for that long that you can look at slide after slide that is almost like a picture album. Here's another photo from a stock photography database and here are a few more keywords. And that's a, that does not sustain engagement for too long. Two, in order for the brain to accept and, and appreciate simplicity, it has to know the complexity from which it has come. Right. In other words, if we just look simply at one picture or one keyword, we would not fully appreciate its sophisticated simplicity almost unless we know some, uh, some background details. This is why neither one of those two extremes, we were talking about IT and marketing, are, are good for the brain and for, for memory. The good balance between the two is, is what works. I love what you said about we don't appreciate simplicity if, unless you see the complexity where it came from. And I think about that when it comes to, say, mission statements. Mm-hmm. Like if you're on the outside and you read something, it's like, okay, whatever, that's nice. But sometimes if you're on the inside and you've agonized over which words are going to go there and which words are not going to go there and why we use the word equipped instead of skilled, yes, then it, it means a great deal to, to those on the inside. Yeah, that's, uh, that's beautifully put. And if you get the chance, uh, check out the mission statement that Burton, you know, the, uh, the skiing equipment company, I think that since then they've uh, evolved into even more outdoors kind of equipment. But you know Burton, right? I've heard of Burton. And uh, if, you, if you read one of their older mission statement passages, there's just uh, such a good combination between exactly what you're talking about, something abstract, but also something concrete and, and very visual that appeals to our senses. So they're not just saying, hey, we want to great, create great equipment for all of your outdoor needs. They, they said, well, in order for us to create this equipment, we had to sleep on floors in uh, cramped hotel rooms. And uh, we had to try and try again. And uh, many times we didn't succeed. 
we had to invent and reinvent. We had to put ourselves in all sorts of dire circumstances. So you can feel all of their journeys and things that they had to reach in order for them to even be able to deliver to us that mission statement. So it's not just a three-liners. It's a, it's a whole paragraph in which they explain how all these things came to be. And because of its complexity and the inclusion of some of these concrete elements, like I'll never forget sleeping on floors in cramped hotel rooms, which it's a huge compliment to them. How many mission statements from companies do you really remember? Right, yeah. (laughs) But I still remember that one because here's another myth that we debunk with science. When it comes to memory and influencing other people's memory, people believe that pictures are superior to text, and that's simply not, not true. It is possible for us to remember words, but what's happening is, especially in business content, so many people use so many abstract words that those are easily forgotten. Whereas if you use words that build a mental picture in someone's mind, you don't always have to have physical pictures or or PowerPoint slides. Like, for example, if I said to you, imagine what you would look like right now if you had a third eye in the middle of your forehead, I wouldn't have to show you a PowerPoint slide for this. You could just picture it. Right. I'd say I look pretty good. Yeah. <laughs> hey, once beauty's a given, you can't mess with that too much. <laughs> oh, wow. This is so much good stuff. We might have to have a, a follow-up episode in the months to come if you're open to that. Because, boy, sure. I, I could really just dig into, into so much of this. So, so there's a balance between simplicity and complexity. Yes. Uh, having your, your words paint a picture. Mm-hmm. being able to show off uh, the complexity from which the simplicity came in order for it to, to connect. What are some other kind of just top drivers or, or levers that we should mention in, in the same breath? Well, let's just refer to some, um, some angles. If we're looking at the foundation for this entire conversation as being attention, memory, and decision-making are the pillars of business success. So let's just start with that, and nothing touches that foundation. From then on, then the questions that we can ask is, what is something that influences then attention? What is something that makes things stick in terms of memory? And I keep insisting on this phrase, influencing other people's memory, not your own. And so what are some, uh, some decision drivers? So we can ask more zoomed-in questions around those pillars. Well, so I think we've, we've heard a bit about attention and memory. Is there anything we should zoom in on decision-making? Yes. Yeah, so for decision-making, we're talking about those three ways of reaching decisions, which are the reflexes, the habits, and, um, and the goals. By the way, as scientists, we get this question all the time, which is, how do you know if somebody acts on habits versus goals? And the way we can tell that is if you are given the brain a reward, which is something that it looks for all day, every day. The brain is constantly in search of rewards and uh, and avoiding punishment. And if you give to the brain something that it finds rewarding and you get it habituated for for a while to that uh, that item, let's just say Doritos, Mm -hmm. and then you devalue that reward. So you can do one of the two things. Either I, I give you Doritos and in return, I ask you to press a lever each time that, uh, that you want it. And then after a while, I'll say, okay, you can have Doritos, as many Doritos as you, as you want, and you don't even have to do anything. So all of a sudden, it's up to your own devices. You can, you can eat as much as, as you want until you get sick. Or as you press the, that lever and, uh, and you get this, uh, this reward that you like, the Doritos, I put, um, I'm being very mean and I put something nasty in them and I make them taste really bad and you get extremely sick. 
to the point where you would not want to touch Doritos ever again in your entire life. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) And then after a while, I get, get you back into the lab for another experiment and I observe, do you still want the Doritos or not? So that means that are you going, the question that I'm literally asking is, will you still be acting based on habits because you ate so much and you just kind of got used to them, got used to them, got used to them? Or will you act based on the goal, knowing that and remembering that from the past you got sick and therefore you should make a different decision, even though those habits are still kind of in your mind? And what we're observing is this, the more exposure you have to those sessions in which you are getting used to the food, you're getting used to the food, getting used to the food, then the harder it will be later on to act based on goals versus habits. So if I catch you early and during those sessions you weren't exposed that much, then it is possible for you to change behavior. If I don't catch you early and the habit is so ingrained it is very, very, very hard to change habits in light of new information. And is there a rule of thumb or, or magic number in terms of number of repetitions or days in which things really settle in? Some counts that we have, I know you may have heard the the 21 days for formation of a habit. Uh, not the whole lot of scientific merit to that, but it has been popularized. The studies that we have available that were done on uh, rodents and humans for for humans, it, you have to have about six times more the exposure to a stimulus in order to start forming a habit versus not. Six times more than a rodent? Not <laughs> a rodent, but a person who is not exposed to the same stimulus. So let's just say that uh, you and I are, um, are eating Doritos. I would have to have six more times the repetitions and the sessions in which to get used to that kind of food than you do in order for me to have a more solid habit. Wait, so... You're comparing yourself to me and the key difference between us is is what in this scenario? Is the fact that one eats Doritos habitually and one does not. Okay, versus I just have them from time to time. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So if if I start training you and I expose you to more of of that stimulus, then I'm starting to build a habit, build a habit, build a habit. And once that threshold uh, has passed, and I'm assuming that is different from different stimuli, the only reason I'm only referring to food is because from an experimental perspective, those have been the only experiments that uh, I know and I can rely on when when I'm sharing these numbers. But I'm sure that in the future, people will start replicating some of these experiments with different stimuli and see what is really that threshold beyond which it's very, very difficult to change a habit. So, so far, the only references we have are in terms of uh, food experiments. Imagine that many of these experiments are not easy to, to, to carry through because whenever you are involving an MRI machine or fMRI technology, those things are not cheap to, uh, to carry, which is uh, a good point um, here in this, uh, this program to remind people to be cautious about some of these neuroscientific studies, so to speak, or results that we tend to, uh, to share with others because you have to look at how many people took part of the experiments, how was right. the experiment carried. Many of these neuroscientific studies are done just with 10 or 15 people. Because it's it's not that cheap to put a person a person's brain in the MRI machine and start running these uh, these studies, and you also have to have randomized in a true study you would have to have a randomized setup, and you would have to have a fairly good number of people <laughs> who are part of it, not just five. Certainly, I'm skeptical when I see a tiny n in a study. Yes. So yes. Uh, yeah. I'm right with you. So. Your book, Impossible to Ignore, it releases today, the same day this episode airs. So 
Yay. Congratulations in advance since we're pre-recording. Thank you. The book has some some nice promises in terms of no more redundant meetings, rambling emails, or anemic presentations. That sounds quite exciting. It sounds like we've covered a few of these topics that are associated with kind of eliminating some of these frustrations and drudgeries. What are some other key gems in there within the book that help contribute to preventing these frustrations from occurring? The main point of the book is to shift our thinking in terms of how we look to stay on people's minds so that they can decide in uh, in our favor. We used to look at memory as something that uh, includes the past. When you say, what do you remember about XYZ? You would immediately think, well, you're recollecting the past. But I'm advocating something different in the book, which is, what if memory has evolved not to help us keep track of the past, but rather to help us keep track of the future? So retrospective memory, which is remembering the past, is is useful, but it's prospective memory, which is remembering to act on a future intention that keeps us in business. And this ties up very nicely the conversation from the beginning of the episode when we were saying, imagine a world where people indeed act on what they promise they will act on, because that's the frustration I started with. It's just so satisfying to me when somebody says, I will do something, and then they follow through. And the reason that they don't follow through quite often is because of that prospective memory. They simply forget to act on future intentions. So the book has guidelines in terms of what is it that you're sharing at point A when you meet with somebody, when you have a conversation, much like we're having today, or when you have a formal presentation, or you may share a blog or create a marketing campaign. That's point A. And then what is it that you expect people to remember and do at point B, which would be minutes later, weeks, even sometimes years later? How can you stay on their people's minds? And what happens at point B that they need in order to act in your favor? And there are three phases that the book will uh, will outline for point B, which is what is it that happens in your life in in the future? Well, you'll notice some cues, so something will will trigger a memory if we're lucky. So, for instance, running the water as we're brushing the teeth will trigger a a cue. You're you're noticing the cue, and you're searching your memory. What was I supposed to do? What was I supposed to do? And then you execute on on the intention if the reward is, is strong enough. So those three phases, if we know how to account for them at point B, then action is more likely. Perfect. Thank you. Well, now I want to shift gears a bit into the the fast fave section to to throw some rapid fire questions your way to just kind of hear the sorts of things that you found useful. Could you start us off by sharing with us a favorite quote, something that you think about that inspires you? Ooh, a favorite quote. Let's uh, think about knowledge since this podcast is about putting knowledge in other people's minds. I remember reading a while back that uh, obviously knowledge is power, but what I remember even more is I always appreciate people who modify quotes to something that uh, has a deeper meaning. And somebody else came and said on top of that, it's not knowledge that's power, it's the application of knowledge that's power. And if we connect that to the purpose of the book, it's not that memory's power is the application of what you remember (laughs) that Mm -hmm. is power. That's great. And, and could you share, you've, you've seen many studies in your day, done some, read many. Are there any kind of particular experiments that you find yourself referencing or again or, and again or that you really admire? Ooh, I have just finished a research study of my own. Just recently, I picked up the uh, top 50 slide shares. You're familiar with slide shares? Oh, yes. Of last year. 
and I asked this question, what do those SlideShares have in common in order for us to like them, share, download, embed, or comment on them? Because if you think about it, if we do any of those five outcomes that I just uh, said, that means that SlideShare creator had the skill to stay on our minds long enough for us to, to act on them. It was in that study that I identified these 15 variables that um, impact other people's memories. So we're not so concerned about how to improve our own memory, but how to stay on other people's minds. I've been studying the, uh, the reflection of those 15 memory variables in those top, uh, top 50 slide shares. And I would say that the best result of that study that I just finished is this. Out of the slide shares that I studied, which didn't have more than 50 slides, I want to say 5 to 10% of those slides contained one memory metric that I'm very fond of, which is surprise, the element of surprise. Mm-hmm. The idea is that in order for you to impact someone and get them to click like or get them to comment, you don't have to create something so intense at every single moment. It's something that's used in very small potions that can still be impactful. So look at an element as surprise, for instance, as caviar, not marmalade. <laughs> I actually am looking forward to reading that in its, in its depths. Is that going to be published somewhere? I, well, yeah, I only published uh, just briefly just these results that I'm sharing with you. But I do plan to, to detail them a little bit more because I think it's such good news for any of us content creators to know that we don't have to try so darn hard at every single unforgiving minute in a conversation sequence or a presentation sequence. Just making something intense and using that element in good proportions is a lot better. It's, it's giving us a lot better results than, uh, than trying too hard every single, every, every single instance. Well, now I've got that Colby Calais song in my head that you don't have to try, 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 try. <laughs> that uses repetition. So that's, that's how I remember it. She kept repeating herself so many times. Oh, that's so good. I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that because obviously when we talk about the 15 um, memory metrics that we can use to influence other people's memory, repetition is definitely the mother of, of memory. So is emotion. So those are two more of the, of the 15 but repetition is a is a tricky thing because it's a it's a fine line that we're walking between asking or some, repeating a message for somebody and sounding remedial. Mm. <laughs> and what I'm noticing in in business content, especially and in business presentations, is that people are afraid to repeat things because the ego gets in the way and because they are afraid of coming across as remedial. Well, what do you think about that? Ooh, I think that I have experienced exactly that, been afraid to come across as remedial, but I think I'm just, what I have to say is so important, <laughs> I guess, I'm mean, yeah, full of myself. It's like, I think this is very important, and I think it's important that it be remembered, and thusly, I am not going to be shy about doing a little previewing and recapping uh, along the way. So I, I do see some kind of looks in the audience like, uh, okay, yeah, we heard you. But I I just don't think there's any other way around it that I'm aware of. Mm-hmm. Yeah, repetition, I think, is a function of exactly what you just said, is a function of the chemistry that you have with your content. Because if there's something that you truly and fully believe in, you'll find it a lot easier to stand up straight in front of an audience, visible or not, and say the same message as many times as it takes to stay on their minds. 
Mm, great. And could you also share with us a favorite book? Ooh, favorite book uh, as of uh, as of late. <laughs> I'm going to say Think Fast and Slow. Have you seen, read, heard of it? This uh, Daniel Kahneman? That's the one, and I'll tell you the reputation that that book has. It's considered currently the greatest book that isn't read. Okay. <laughs> and I don't know if you had the chance to read it or may have seen it. It's very dense. It's uh, it's packed with the um, science based information, which is one of the reasons that uh, that I read it. But I can see how people would get drawn to the message and to that simplicity because he says, essentially speaking, about the the brain operating on these two systems. If we were to relate to his two systems, the three decision um, paths we said earlier. Remember the reflexes, habits, and and goals. The reflexes and habits would link to his system one, which um, is a system that is uh, fast and and automatic and went to immediate gratification and what craves that chocolate and uh, system two would be the more goal-oriented system and it's the one that we can relate to because it's the seat of the self so to speak so yeah when you have that kind of simplification it's easy to get drawn to a book but then when you have to read the details behind it then some people may shy away but if you do make if you have the willpower which is what we're talking earlier Mm -hmm. uh, it's a it's a great reward and can you share with us a favorite website Ooh, favorite website. I like wired.com. Yes, it's a good one. And uh, favorite habit, or, or so you talked a lot about sort of habits and goals. What are some habits that you've successfully installed that have been pretty transformational in your life? Mm, a habit that serves me well as a, as a psychologist. It's a, it's a habit that I advocate for other people also. In, uh, in psychology, we call it a, a change of state. So, for instance, I find that it's fairly difficult sometimes to stay focused for prolonged periods of time on a task, let's just say writing a book or writing a blog or just something that after a while becomes repetitive, since we're talking about repetition. And uh, one of the ways to counteract that is to change the place where you're, you're sitting. So if I'm working at a desk and having a certain view for about an hour, then I may change to a different desk that's simply facing a, a wall and it's providing a different context altogether. And after that becomes habitual then the, or the brain habituates way too much, then I may choose for another hour to work at a coffee shop and that's another change of state. And after that, they can rotate through the similar workspaces and that variety gives me enough to, uh, to sustain the energy. Oh, I do that too. Good Oh, you Good do? Trick. What, Good trick. What, what do you switch between? Well, I, I switch just between is it my desk in the home office? Is it my desk in the bedroom? Is it out in a coffee shop? Is it in sort of different chairs, like I, standing or sitting or lying down? Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I think I like it all. I, I love that. I love that so much. I think that my next line of research is going to be on this uh, new emerging field that's called uh, neural energy. Oh. And I'm intrigued by by this angle of sustaining focus by looking at how much cognitive energy do we have left. Because if we are starting from the premise that the brain is constantly looking to conserve energy and we can only produce that much through the, through the day, how do we maximize it? I, I will read that. Thank you. What would be a, a favorite way to find you? If folks want to get in touch, they want to learn more, would you prefer a website or Twitter or email? Any of those uh, those three will work or a combination. Our website, uh, like you said, it is uh, rexymedia.com. For Twitter, I am on 
at are you memorable? And uh, my email address is csimon at rexymedia.com. Oh, perfect. Thank you. And do you have, as a parting thought, a, a favorite challenge or, or call to action you'd like to leave listeners with? Yes, I love challenges. And here's my challenge for any, any listener. As you deliver a message, whether it's uh, an informal conversation or a formal presentation, after you have delivered that message, do you have the courage in two days to call members from your audience and ask these two questions. What do you remember from what I said? And what are you willing to do with it? And see if you're satisfied with the answers that you get back. Oh, I do. that does take courage. I love it. Carmen, thank you so much. It has been such a treat to have you here. And, and there are just so many nuggets I would love to, to mine more. So if you're serious about uh, coming back again, I, I think that may well be necessary because you, you're, you keep turning out more good research. Excellent. Yes, that count me in. Oh, fantastic. Well, well, thank you and enjoy the rest of your day. Thank you so much, Pete. You too. Well, I hope that was a ton of fun for you as it was for me. Once again, you can check out those resources at awesomeatyourjob.com slash ep11 and keep on making your messages memorable. Until next time. Bye-bye. Thanks for joining us for today's episode. To get the most out of this conversation, visit awesomeatyourjob.com to find today's show notes, transcript, and infographic summary cheat sheet. For more entertaining professional skill sharpening, be sure to subscribe to catch the next episode of How to Be Awesome at Your Job.